I woke up one morning during my sabbatical and I walked out to the kitchen of our lovely Airbnb in St. Paul, started the coffee maker, looked out the window over the backyards to the very spot we used to live many years ago, poured myself a cup of coffee and then sat down in a comfortable lounger with the science fiction book I was reading at the time and after a few pages noticed that I was feeling so restless. Restless. It felt like there was something I was forgetting, something else I was supposed to be doing, something I had left undone. Had I contacted the people I wanted to connect with here? Was there someone I was supposed to get back to? Were there messages on my phone, text, voice? Were there emails? Was my calendar updated to central time? Had I agreed to meet someone somewhere, sometime? I was grasping for some tangible reason that I should be feeling this way, something that I could address, that I could fix, that I could take care of. And then... I could relax. But I soon discovered that the restlessness existed quite independently of any tangible reason for it to be there. This feeling that there was something else I should be doing, that there was somewhere else I was supposed to be. I had to remind myself persistently in a sort of mantra of relaxation that there was nowhere else I was supposed to be and there was nothing else I needed to be doing. It's okay, I told myself, as if I was talking to a frightened puppy. It's okay, there's nothing else you need to be doing. Nowhere else you need to be. And I was able to return to my book, my coffee, my morning, my sabbatical. Not to say that that restlessness departed entirely, but it became easier to notice when it arose. And if I noticed it, I didn't waste time trying to find the source of it. The source was me, after all. And my recognition of what it was that was happening within me drained it of a little bit of its power. I began to understand during this sabbatical period that I was tired, undoubtedly tired, from the work and demands of ministry in deeply challenging times. But some of the exhaustion, the profound exhaustion, came from this voice inside telling me that whatever I was doing, there was something else I should be doing. That wherever I was, there was somewhere else I should be. And I share this with you all today because I have a suspicion that this syndrome is not unique to professional ministry. That you may sometimes hear that voice too. That we live in a culture that strengthens that voice and that message. It is not enough, after all, to be here when I have the opportunity to be there too. It is not enough to simply do this when one has the opportunity to do all these other things, too. We live in a culture that glorifies multitasking, right? 
Turns out, according to Johan Hari and the researchers he spoke to for the book, Stolen Focus, that you heard Mary read passages from in the reading, turns out multitasking, brain-wise, is not really a thing. What When I believe myself to be multitasking, I am not actually focusing on more than one task. Rather, I am shifting focus among multiple tasks very rapidly, going from one to another, back and forth, across and down. If you imagine that there may be a loss in the quality of attention in this process, the research apparently would back you up. Because with each shift in focus, I need to reorient myself to the given task, by which point it may just be time to switch focus again if I am to retain my reputation as a strong multitasker. Yes, it turns out for quality of attention or what was called flow in the reading, one needs to monotask. And I I love that our culture has to come up with a new term for doing a single thing. (laughs) Monotasking. Flow, being completely absorbed in a task such that time slips away and one merges with the experience. Flow can only come when you are monotasking, when you choose to set aside everything else and do one thing. Distraction and multitasking kill flow. And nobody will reach flow if they're trying to do two or more things at the same time. And I understand that what we refer to as multitasking, it may be necessary in some situations and circumstances. Parenthood comes to mind, for instance. One often has to shift attention among numerous responsibilities involved with caring for children and taking care of a family. You can all undoubtedly come up with other examples from your own experience. But what I am talking about is not the circumstantial necessity of sometimes shifting among multiple focal points. I am talking about how culturally speaking, we have turned the illusory idea of multitasking that we can actually focus on multiple things simultaneously. We have turned this illusion into what feels like a duty, such that restlessness with wherever we are and whatever we are doing can invade one's consciousness when there is no good or even tangible reason for it to do so. Flow comes from choosing what to focus on. Multitasking and the restlessness that accompanies accompanies it arises from the illusion that I don't have to choose. That I can do it all at once. That I can be everywhere now. It can invade the way we do our work, the way we pursue personal interests, even the way we care for ourselves physically, emotionally, spiritually. Everything is added to the endless scroll of to-dos such that whatever we are doing, we carry the gnawing reminder of what we could be doing, which quickly becomes what we should be doing. I remember 
One evening at United Theological Seminary, it was toward the end of a semester, sitting around a table in the cafeteria with other students commiserating about all that we still needed to get done. Sermons to finish, reports on our internships, historical theology papers to write, the collective recitation of this daunting to-do list grew to a cacophonous crescendo as we remembered and lamented all at once all that had to be done in a desperately short amount of time. And then the noise gently ebbed as we slowly exhausted our lists, our heads dropped to the table, falling atop outstretched arms or settling onto folded hands. Silence reigned for a short time as we each grimly contemplated the work ahead of us. And then one woman's head rose abruptly from the table and with a look of fresh agony on her face, she exclaimed, Ah, damn, I still have to finish that paper on self-care. <laughs> it took us a minute, our tired brains being a little slow to receive the information, but finally we all erupted in the raucous, uncontrolled laughter of the sleep-deprived, completely stressed out about finishing a paper on self-care. What is wrong with this picture? Seminaries are not immune from reinforcing this syndrome, nor are congregations. Come into this place of peace, we say, with the words of William Schultz in our hymnal. However, there are so many things that have to happen, so many things that provide the foundation for that invitation. There are so many volunteer tasks that must be carried out for us to be in this place at this time. So many tasks just on Sunday mornings, not to mention all of the supportive work and planning that goes on during the week and over the month and throughout the year that allow us to be here now with the possibility of entering into a peaceful state of feeling the healing power of words and music and silence, of feeling restored. Just as in seminary we were asked to come to class and study and learn about and understand and respond to and write about what our professors and textbooks were offering to us about the vital importance of self-care, tasks which often necessarily precluded the actual practice of self-care in just such a way, we acknowledge that in order to make this a place and time for potential restoration, and to me that is the fundamental question that describes self-care, what is it that restores you? To offer this as a place of peace and this time as a time of potentially restoring your soul, we ask volunteers to engage in a hum of activity and in a flurry of tasks that are something less than peaceful and quite often something other than restorative. And just as the seminary experience of self-care was pointed toward the goal of having us actually practice it, discovering and cultivating that which proved to be restorative as we carried out our ministries, just so are the tasks and the work and the time 
and the dedication we ask from you to make this a place of peace pointed toward the goal of having you actually being able to experience peace, restoration, renewal, revitalization. And I know that it will not happen for every person every week. And I know that you may find restoration in a whole host of places outside of this sanctuary. But my concern is that in doing all that is necessary to make this a place of peace, a space for restoration, we not forget that our work is pointed toward the actual experience of it. My concern is that we not be robbed of the potential by the details of the preparation. I understand and accept that we may each and all grow tired from the work involved in what we are doing. And I hope we can guard against the exhaustion that comes from believing it and we are not enough. So much undone. So much to do. So much to heal in us and the world. So much to acquire just around the corner of now. And up against it, the reality of all that falls short and the limits of today. We honor the limits. The world won't stop spinning on her axis if you don't rise to all occasions today. Love won't cease to flow in your direction. Your heart won't stop beating. All hope won't be lost. For you are part of the plan for this world's salvation. Of that, I have no doubt. And I hope that you feel in your bones, in your weary heart, the aching, healing sense that this is enough, even this. That we are enough. You are enough. 